Good evening. Welcome to another wonderful evening of Tanya. This is class number what? Who's counting, huh? <laughs> I think it's our 24th class. And uh, we are up to chapter 10, which I sent out. I sent out this morning, the handout. You all got it? So we are at chapter 10. And we're really going to start seeing how the flow of Tanya starts really coming together. The Tanya is so methodical that it's really a, a succession of ideas and concepts and contexts that slowly come together to giving us understanding of who we are, what is a healthy expectation of who we should be, and how to get there. And really what we're doing is we have two souls. That's what we learned about. We have an animal soul, we have a divine soul. We've really learned about how these souls function and uh, what each of their respective drives are in the earlier chapters. Chapter nine, we learned that these two souls are in a constant battle. There's tremendous friction between these two souls. There's an ongoing war within you, within your body, over your body. Each soul wants everything. And what does everything mean? Let's go through it again. Each soul wants, number one, full control. So do you have a, a brain you could think? Each soul wants that brain to think about what it wants to think about. Do you have a heart you could feel? you have emotions? You could generate emotions? Each soul wants that heart. It wants to feel what it is interested in feeling. And then there's all your functionality. Do you have fingers? Do you have legs? Do you have eyes? You have a nose, everything. You have a mouth, you could speak. Every single part of who you are, each soul has an agenda for and wants it totally. And then even further, each soul, just like what everybody wants to do with their enemy, if you're on the battlefield, wants peace. How do you get peace? At minimum peace that the enemy stands down. I don't want to hear even hear a croak from my enemy. <laughs> I want to, uh, and if, if your enemy is, you feel is an invader, you want it out, right? Get out of my property. I want you gone. And the highest level is, uh, which the divine soul really wants this, is to convert and transform the animal soul into an ally. So how can I make my animal soul to stop chasing me after a good slice of pizza and how do I get it to start encouraging me to do a mitzvah? Right? Could I get my animal soul to be just as excited about everything holy and godly and good, just as my just as my as, as the godly soul is? And now, chapter 10, starting in chapter 10, going through chapter 11, going through chapter 12, the author is going to introduce us to five different categories of people and each of these categories reflect a different position in the battlefield and i i want to try to visualize it you have a godly soul you have an animal soul they're fighting the way it works in fights is that one side builds up momentum they're maybe able to push forward push back there's always going to be the front line this is where we are at Side A has made these gains and these losses and has these strategic advances, advantages. 
Side B also, these losses, these gains, has this, has that. There's always going to be a front line. Where are we right now in the battle? Depending on where your front line is, determines what type of person you are. There's different categories. What are these categories? It takes us back to chapter one. In the very first chapter of Tanya, if you remember, the Altar told us there are three titles and really five titles. There's something called a tzaddik, there's something called a rasha, and there's a benini, which very loose translation means a righteous person, a wicked person, and somebody who's somewhere in between, somewhere somewhere average, someone uh, mediocre, not too good, not too bad, right? That's, that's at least the, uh, the very colloquial, unsophisticated understanding of those words. And more specifically, let me just jog your memory, there are two types of tzaddiks. There are two types of rushas. There's a higher level tzaddik, a higher level and a lower level tzaddik. There's a higher level rush and a lower level rush, and then there's the bainity. So really there's five different uh, categories or classifications or grades of people. And what the Yaltab is going to say is a tzaddik and a rasha and a bainity. If you want to understand who these people are, it's not about how they look. It's not about what they are even doing. It's about what is going inside in their own heart. What is happening in the internal conflict? It's a very, very uh, personal uh, internal state. So the author is going to begin with one end of the spectrum, which is a tzaddik. This chapter is here is going to define for us what is a tzaddik, and we're going to understand what a tzaddik is in terms of, in context of what we've been studying in, in Tanya. And I really do think that it somewhat uh, shatters conventional understanding of what a tzaddik is, what a righteous person is. When we say that there's the word, there's a tzaddik, somebody was a tzaddik. What makes them a tzaddik? What makes somebody righteous? What makes somebody a saint, right? Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu was a tzaddik. So what's a tzaddik? You know, what, what makes you a tzaddik? Do you have to be sweet enough? Do you have to be nice enough? How long and glowy and 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 uh, you know nice does your beard does your white beard have to be? How white does your beard have to be? <laughs> you know how much of a shine do you have to have on your face? Can a taxi driver be a tzaddik? No, that's not impressive enough, <laughs> right? What does a tzaddik mean? And if you think about it, you know, am I a tzaddik? I do a lot of good stuff. Maybe I'm a tzaddik. Maybe you're a tzaddik. So where do you draw the line? What exactly is a tzaddik, a righteous person? So let us read. In one paragraph, we're going to have clarity. And the rest of what we're going to learn today is going to enrich our understanding of the internal state of a tzaddik. And it's a very important paragraph, the opening paragraph. So chapter 10, let's take it from the top. The tzaddik. Part one, the victory of the tzaddik. Now, let's say that a person empowers his divine soul. Somebody engages in the fight. They're not lazy. They empower, they give power to their divine soul. He fights the battle with the animal soul to the point that he banishes and eliminates the bad within it from the left 
ventricle of the heart. Like it says, you will eliminate the bad from within you. Such a person is a tzaddik. Which means, we all have an animal soul. The animal soul is naturally connected, attracted to, and what we call in Tanya language, bad. Bad doesn't mean not kosher. Bad doesn't mean uh, murderous. Bad literally means, right, as we learned in previous chapters, bad means klipa, means non-holy. The tzaddik is somebody who has an animal soul who has zero attraction to anything but holiness. No attraction to anything which is materialistic of the physical world. No ego. Unbelievable. That's what a tzaddik is. Tzaddik is somebody that he lives only with his divine soul. So here's the way to think about it. Here's a great exercise. If you want to test if you're a tzaddik, take an hour and shut off any impulse control. All right? Try even five minutes that the second, the mere second that you have any impulse, you will act upon it with no filter. Shut off that filter. So if you try that, even just for five minutes, you'll probably have a very good idea if you're a tzaddik or not. If within a half hour you're not arrested or something, <laughs> then, uh, then you're a tzaddik. A tzaddik is not just somebody who acts better than we do. It's not just somebody who is so kind. There's a lot of mitzvahs. A tzaddik is somebody who, in his heart of hearts, does not and never will have a single impulse for anything that is not, that is other than holy God, Torah, and mitzvahs. So if you simply walk by and see dinner and you say, wow, that smells good, you're not a tzaddik. Only animal souls give off those types of, uh, of messages. How does it taste? How does it smell? Is it appetizing? That, that's, that's, a tzaddik does not experience that. A tzaddik is nothing but a divine soul in action, 24-7. No other impulses. No, what I want to impress upon you at this point, before we go further, is that a tzaddik is not something that we could relate to. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, a tzaddik was a better, is a better version of me. Maybe it's a much better version of me, but it's still a version of me. When you realize that, you know, we are, for the most part of our conscious life, an animal soul, right? That's usually just a state of affairs. We are dealing with an animal soul 24-7. That's the life that we live. A tzaddik doesn't, is a godly soul 24-7 with no animal soul. So I want to share with you three stories. Okay. Here's the first story, which is really a setup for the following two stories. Three Hasidic stories. So the story goes like this. In the 1800s, there was a Jew who was part of the Enlightenment, which means he uh, rejected uh, you know, traditional Judaism. And he would scoff 
at the at religious life. And he was once speaking with a Hasidic relative, and he was he was mocking. He said, Oh, all these Rebbe's, all they care, all the Hasidic Rebbe's, all they care about is money and honor. They're just a bunch of frauds that you fall for it. So the Hasid answered back this uh, this relative, right? This um he shared him a little story. All right, it's a very deep story. It was once a farmer and his wife that owned a cow. That was all they owned, a Jewish farmer and his wife. They owned a cow. That's how they made their money. They would milk the cow and sell the milk. And, that, that was... and every single day, they would bring out a pail of water to feed the cow. Now, Sunday morning's pail of water was a very special pail of water. Why? Because on Shabbos, the, this poor, simple couple would bring out their Shabbos dishes. And on Saturday night after Shabbos, they would wash those special Shabbos dishes with water before they put it away. Today, we use water to wash our dishes. And what do we do with it? Spill it right out. But back in those days, you don't spill out good water. So Sunday morning, the cow got the dirty water that was used to clean the Shabbos dishes. And that water was so tasty. You have, uh, it was tasty water, right? Because they cleaned dishes and there was a little bit of bread particles. So the cow looked forward from week to week for Sunday mornings like that'll have his tasty water. One week, Saturday night, after washing all the dishes, the pail of water tipped over. Oh, okay. So Sunday morning, what do you think the cow got? He just got a regular old pail of water. And the cow couldn't believe it. What happened to my Sunday morning special? Right? Sunday morning breakfast special. Where's my where's my uh, wonderful, delicious pail of water? And he's trying to, his, the cow's mind is racing. What happened to my water? He's trying to figure out. Did I misbehave this week? Maybe they're punished. Maybe they don't like me anymore. Maybe they're going to go buy a new cow now. He doesn't know. He's trying to figure out what's happening. So the cow finally settles on the, on the uh, uh, yeah. he figured out what happens, right? This was his theory. I'll tell you what happened. The farmer's wife was jealous of me. She also wanted the tasty Sunday morning water. So this week she stole the water before the farmer could give it to me. That's what happened. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that when you're a cow, you think like a cow. And you think everybody thinks like a cow. <laughs> in English, we have, a, we, have a, we have a word for that in English. It's called projection. When we are projecting our biases, when we are projecting our weaknesses upon somebody else. <laughs> but it's especially true when a cow is projecting a cow life upon a human. Right? Well, what do you know about human life? You think that all we think about is dirty water. You think we like dirty water. Right? You think like a cow. So this chassid was telling this, uh, his relative, you, know, you, you projecting, <laughs> and you trying to figure out the life of a, of a, of a, of a, of a tzaddik, of a rebbe, is, uh, you know, 
just as useful as a cow trying to figure out the life of a human. We really have to appreciate that when we realize what a Rebbe is and what, what, and what a Tzaddik is. It's, it's really the gulf is perhaps just as wide as between a cow and, and, and a human as it is between you know, a layman like us and a Tzaddik. It's a whole different lifestyle. It's a whole different experience in life. So now, I, oh, so I want to share with you two stories. And I think bring out this idea that a tzaddik is somebody who is tuned in and plugged in absolutely to his divine soul, and the animal soul is gone. There's no animal soul. He will never get even one impulse that comes from the animal soul. So the first story is about the Rebbe. Very, very powerful story. You know, and I wouldn't share this story, uh, you know, on a regular day. But, you know, when we, the more we learn Tanya, the more we are ready for a little bit of a sensitive story. A little bit more of a, of a subtle story, of a refined story. So here we go. All right. So I'm telling you the story with trust. On Purim, so the Rebbe every single year would uh, hold a Purim gathering. And the Rebbe's Purim gatherings were very special. You really saw what holy joy looks like. Very, very special. This was Purim of 1958. And it was very clear to anybody there that the Rebbe was taking uh, more vodka than usual. And the Rebbe was in unbelievably high spirits. The Rebbe was speaking in such a high-pitched tone. The Rebbe was just so full of energy, so full of life. And the Rebbe was very uninhibited. The Rebbe was saying things he would never say. The Rebbe was calling people out and uh, giving them, telling them what they need to hear, even though usually it wouldn't be, uh, usually the Rebbe wouldn't do that. But over here, the, it, was, it was unbelievable. And everybody was able to clearly see the Rebbe was literally intoxicated, you know, even more than other perms. And the Rebbe went on for 11 hours. Yeah, I don't like using the the word has a lot of negative uh, uh, a lot of negativity built into it, but you know, for all practical intents and purposes, the Rebbe was drunk. The Rebbe had a lot of vodka. And you hear it. The entire event is on tape. If you want, you could listen to 11 hours of the Rebbe in such a, in such a state of mind. And you could literally, you could hear it in the recording. As the evening goes on, the Rebbe's speech slows and slurs a little bit. It's harder for the Rebbe to talk. So let's just stop right there. There's a, there's, I, I, I want to get to a punchline. Let's just stop there. What happens when we get drunk? Right? right? God knows what happens when we get drunk. It's not that pretty. <laughs> Unfortunately, when we lose our sense of inhibition, it's not necessarily the most beautiful sight. <laughs> and, and what happens when it's sadik? You know, Loses his inhibition. What happens when a tzaddik is intoxicated? It, it, it's really beautiful. It's unbelievable. You're seeing a raw godly soul, the godly soul of a tzaddik, just showering forth, flowing out. And the Rebbe is, is speaking. The main theme that the Rebbe was speaking about that night was Jewish education. Making sure that our children get the proper Jewish education. Making sure that every single other Jewish child gets a Jewish education. 
this is what the Rebbe was, was, was firing about a whole night. That was the main theme from many other. You know, that, that's, that's a certain litmus test. <laughs> you know, when the uninhibited you flows forward, what comes out? In a tzaddik, it's, it's unbelievably beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It's really awesome. I, 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 I've listened to that entire Fabring in multiple times. The whole 11 hours of it. it it's otherworldly. It's really beautiful. But here's, here's the punchline. The next day, the Rebbe called in two of his uh, main transcribers, which means the Rebbe spoke. The Rebbe barely wrote any of his teachings. So there were special Hasidim, scholars, that their job was to take the Rebbe's teachings and to put them down to paper. So the Rebbe called two of them in. And the Rebbe told them, I remember what happened last night up until this point. I do not remember from this point and on. And it was only two hours in. The Rebbe only was able to remember the first two hours. There was about like eight, nine hours where the Rebbe says, I don't remember what happened. Please tell me everything that I said. I want full review right now. So they did that. At one point, the Rebbe stopped them. And the Rebbe said, did I really say that? And they said, yeah, that's what you said last night. And the Rebbe asked again, did I, did I, did I, did I really say that? Yeah, that's what the Rebbe said. So listen to this. So the Rebbe said, no, if that's what I said, there must be a source in the Torah for it. Do you hear that? The Rebbe was shocked that he said it because he couldn't remember that idea in the Torah. <laughs> he said, "If I, there must be, and indeed, when they, when they published Rebbe's talks, they always put footnotes and sources to the ideas Rebbe spoke about, and, and there, there was a source for this idea as well. Just the Rebbe couldn't remember. You know, for even a person to be able to say those words, if I said it, there must be a source in Torah. It's, it's, it's really otherworldly. You know, this is what it means to be a tzaddik. And one last story. And again, also, this is a, this is a very similar idea, but it's, oh, you hear these stories, it's really something else. The fifth Chabad Rebbe. All right, so the, so our Rebbe, was the seventh in the dynasty, in the line of the Chabad Rebbe's, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, so two generations up. His name was Rabbi Shalom Dovber Schneerson. Rabbi Shalom Dovber was known as the Rebbe Rashab. And he was the leader of the Chabad movement in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And it was a time of a tremendous upheaval in the Jewish world, in Europe. And in those days, there was something called um, the Conference of Rabbis which means the, the, the rabbis from that time um, would gather, I believe maybe once or twice a year, to discuss the issues that the Jewish community are facing. And it was a very, very uh, impressive gathering. Really, the greats of the previous generation would come together, and they would have meetings and deliberations. It was gone for a few days. And the, the Rebbe Rashab would go there often to these meetings. It was once that the Rebbe Rashab was talking to one of his, somebody who he considered a friend. 
who was a Jewish leader of the time. His name was Rabbi Chaim Brisker. You ever heard of that name, Chaim Brisker? Or uh, he was the father of the Soloveitchik family. And he was a tremendous leader. Um, he was a tremendous Talmudic scholar. He, innovate, he created an entire innovative way of studying Talmud, known as the Brisker style of studying. Very impressive guy. And he was very close. He really had an affinity for the, for the Lubavitcher rabbi. And he was once speaking with him. They were talking about one of the issues that was brought up in the uh, rabbinic conference. And the Rebbe Rashab said, my feeling is that we have to do this. And Rabbi Chaim Brisker, who was a tremendous intellectual, says, Rebbe, <laughs> since when do we follow our feelings? We got to think it out. Feelings aren't always so good. You know, we, we, we have to deliberate on this. So we challenged that. How do you trust your feelings? How are you saying I feel this? So the Rebbe Rashab said, no. I could trust my feelings. Listen to this. The Rebbe Shab said, when I was a teenager, I trained my body to instinctively be in line with the code of Jewish law, with the Shulchan Aruch. And if I have a feeling, it's a good feeling. <laughs> if I feel something, that means it's a good decision. You know, most people, their feelings, you don't know where it's coming from. Is it coming from a godly place or from an animalistic place? And the Rebbe Shab's mother said about him, he said when, when he would sleep, if his yarmulke fell off from his head, his hand would immediately go in the middle of a sleep and grab the yarmulke. His, he, didn't have to, he didn't have to think about it. His body was automatically in sync. So I'm telling you these stories because just to bring out, this is what a is somebody who is at the very end of the spectrum. They've won the battle. The battle is over and there's a decisive victor. There's a winner. And that winner is the godly soul. And this godly soul is at peace. It never has to compete. There's no battle. There's a divine soul who gets to lead this body. And this body becomes a chariot, a medium, a conduit for godliness and goodness and holiness. I just want to tell you right now, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. Very few people are born with the potential to be a tzad. All right, so we're going to study about it, Sadiq, but the author is going to tell us soon, not in this chapter, that um, this is uh, this is not you. <laughs> You're not going to be able to make it to this. All right, so it's a uh, we're learning about people who are beyond us, who are greater than us, who are endowed by God with tremendous potential to be a Sadiq. And it's inspiring to read about. It's really awe-inspiring, but uh, it's, it's beyond us. Okay. So we know what a tzaddik is. A tzaddik is somebody who does not have to deal with their animal soul. Their animal soul has been won over. And that animal soul is gone. To use the wording over here, he banished and eliminated any negativity, any badness from the animal soul. That's it. It's gone. There's no... The animal soul won't even make a croak. Not even a croak. There's nothing coming from the enemy. Okay. But the author now is going to introduce us to the idea that there are two types of tzaddiks. There's something called a complete tzaddik. There's something called an incomplete tzaddik. 
And we're going to learn about these two types of characters. And as we explore the difference between them, we'll understand a lot more um, the inner life of a tzaddik. And there's some very key ideas that we're going to be introduced to as part of this uh, continuing discussion. All right? So let's go. We're in the middle of the first page here. So the author says, yet, listen to this, interesting nuance. Yet, if he did not manage to completely transform the bad of the animal soul to actual good, then he is classified as an incomplete tzaddik or tzaddik who has a bad. Oh, very interesting. The author says like this. This is part of the rules of, of spiritual, uh, spiritual biology, okay? Follow along with this. You have an animal soul, and your animal soul, an animal soul is really just a drive of life. It's a drive for living. Whatever the animal soul sees valuable for life, there's just an engine that says, go there. Anything that's a threat to life, it says, go away which is why the animal soul is always evolving. Babies crawl on the ground and put, put schmutz, put trash in their mouth. <laughs> why? Because their animal soul, all it sees is something that we could engage with. You get a little bit older, you start enjoying, uh, you know, Laffy Taffy's and ice cream. <laughs> you get a little bit older, you start enjoying a good, a good steak or a good burger. So the animal soul just simply evolves its its taste what it feels at once um you know you're younger you want a lego car you get a little bit older you start wanting a real car so this is the way it works when you are able to take your animal soul and elevate it and mature it to the point that it loses interest in worldly matters you know what happens you don't have a dead animal soul your animal soul immediately flips. We'll call it a transformation happens. Your animal soul now is not an animal soul that is interested in worldly pleasures. The animal soul now turned into a force of godliness. And with the same energy that it used to want to go eat a good hamburger, with that same energy now it wants to go do a mitzvah. So there's no such thing as having an animal soul that is just dead and personalityless and loses interest in the world, lost interest in the world. The alchemist says, if you truly remove all the negative associations that this animal soul has with the ego and the worldly pleasure, once you bring it down to zero, it immediately flips and transforms into essentially a second godly soul. The author ever says, if you're a tzaddik and you don't feel that that happened, and it's very noticeable when it happens, all right? So all it takes is a little bit of self-awareness. But if you feel that you have an animal soul that is kind of dead, you, you're not getting any impulses from the animal soul. But if you don't feel that that animal soul has now turned into an ally, has now turned into a force of goodness and holiness and godliness, the author says, I got news for you. You know what that means? You still got a drop of negativity in that animal soul. 
And you're called an incomplete tzaddik, the tzaddik who has it bad. I want to read a little bit more, and then we're going to, now I'm going to explain to you a little bit more, okay? Polina's asking, what about depression? You use definition losing interest in worldly pleasure. So that's not the yes. only definition because losing interest in worldly pleasures is sign of depression too. Oh, okay. So we're talking about somebody that's not, didn't get there out of depression, has gotten there because they are beyond that. Just okay. it doesn't talk to them. It doesn't the same way, the same way you walk into a store and you don't care to buy a doll, right? Not because I'm depressed, I lost the uh, I, you know, I became numb. I'm not talking about numbness. I'm talking about a very healthy human being who has lifted himself up to the point that good food is not is not on his radar anymore. Just doesn't he just he's so past that, right? Let's read a little bit more. I want to explain this concept to you. So the author says there's something called an incomplete tzaddik, or the tzaddik who has it bad. These are terms that the Talmud teaches us. There's something called a complete tzaddik and incomplete tzaddik. There's something called a tzaddik who has bad. And the altruist says, now we can understand what these terms mean. If your animal soul did not turn into this passionate force that is looking to do another mitzvah, that means there's still a little bit of bad, a little bit of negativity in your animal soul. Oh. So what's happening with that negativity? Let's read. That is to say, there is still a smidgen of bad within the heart's left ventricle of the incomplete tzaddik. Only that due to its smallness, it is so, so, so little, so insignificant, it is suppressed and insignificant before the good. Therefore, it may appear to him that he's chased away all of his internal negativity, and that it's left him entirely, right? For all, practically speaking, the tzaddik never even senses that he has a little bit of negativity within him. Well, I'll explain to you soon what the negativity means. He doesn't feel it, but the alchemist says it's there. It's there. But the truth is, let's continue reading top of page 93, but the truth is that he did not completely remove all the negativity from within. For if the bad within him had really gone away altogether, then it wouldn't merely be absent. It would have been converted to a force of actually of, of actual good. You hear this here? So the author of it says like this. When your animal soul truly becomes, loses absolute any sense of affiliation, any sense of association, any sense of attraction to the physical world, to physical pleasure. That means that your animal soul is now ready to enter a new phase of consciousness where it is now interested in holy things. And it's very noticeable when that happens. Not because I'm not telling you this from experience, all right? This did not happen by me. I have a very healthy, uh, raw animal soul. But for a tzaddik, when they reach this moment of transformation, it's very noticeable. Because the animal soul is very impulsive. It's very animalistic. Uh, it's very on fire. It's very emotionally impulsive. Um, it's very passionate. 
And when your animal soul starts pushing you to do a mitzvah and starts pushing you to connect with Hashem, you, you could tell that it's your animal soul. And I could, have, I could only imagine that it's a very, it's a very uh, uh, inspiring moment to have your animal soul passionately push you to do a mitzvah the way it once pushed you to go, you know, follow your pleasures, worldly pleasures. It's a very powerful force. So the Altarist says there could be a tzaddik that practically doesn't feel any negativity. But he has it. It's just so little. It goes unnoticed. But it's there. I'll give you a little example. <laughs> Can I gross you out for a moment? You could download online the FDA handbook, right? The Food and Drug Association of our government. And the FDA, we trust the FDA to make sure that when we go to a store and buy anything, it's not contaminated. It is what they're telling us it is. That's going to be healthy for us, nutritious for us. Not have any mold, not have any garbage. But if you'll read the FDA handbook, which is not something that regular people do, but if you would read it, you'd kind of get pretty grossed out. Because they have in there um, how much rodent excrement is allowed to be present per every 1,000 gram of peanut butter. Which is, right, 1,000 gram is what, like four cups? So if you eat a, a, you know, a quarter of a cup of, uh, of peanut butter, you could assume that there's a certain amount of uh, rat excrement in your peanut butter. Um, it tells you how many rat hairs you're allowed to have in a hot dog. Yeah, I know. I'm so sorry here. <laughs> but this is true. And FDA says there's no problem. Which means at a certain point, enough rodent excrement would get a factory shut down. But if it's so little that it could go so unnoticed that it's it's one in I don't know what it's one in ten it's one particle out of ten thousand, one in ten thousand. I don't know what the exact thing is, but the FDA says it's as if it doesn't even exist. No one's even going to taste it. You can't even detect it. It's there, but if it's on that small of a level, it's okay. <laughs> I I guess that's what we're talking about over here about the incomplete sadik. The incomplete tzaddik still has an animal soul and still has a, a association with the ego and the klipa of the animal soul. But it's so, so, so minimal. Barely, right? He has just a few rat hairs of klipa. A little bit. <laughs> but that's it. Nothing more. Practically speaking, it goes unnoticed. But the author says... The fact is, if you don't feel that that transformation happened, you have it. Okay. So the incomplete tzaddik has reached peace, but he has not reached an internal transformation, right? So let's read a little bit more over here. Let's explore this idea. The author is going to go into a little bit more specifics here. The author is now going to introduce us to the complete tzaddik. And once we understand the complete tzaddik, then we'll be able to understand uh, the state of the incomplete tzaddik, who still has a little bit of negativity, still has a little bit of klipa within his animal soul. So let, let's read over here. The complete tzaddik. A complete tzaddik is someone who transformed his bad into good. The animal soul 
is clean of any klipa and is now a force of godliness, period. That is why he is also called a tzaddik who has it good. He's only good. No bad. Not even a rat here of bad. Nothing pure as anything. He has achieved this by completely removing the filthy garments, which is Kabbalah lingo, Kabbalah code word, for the emotional attachment to worldly pleasures from his inner negativity. All right? He has, it's gone. He has no more association with worldly pleasures. What that means is that not only does he not have any emotional attachment and impulse for physical pleasure, but even more so, he has come to be deeply repulsed by the pleasures of this world, of the notion of enjoying mortal pleasures purely to gratify the body's cravings and not for the service of God. All right, this is a key idea. The Altarba says, not only is a tzaddik somebody who has lost interest in physical pleasures, he is disgusted by the sound of it. He is disgusted by the thought of it. It nauseates him. You see this and you see it as something that you could use for your own physical pleasure? That is disgusting. It's abhorrent to the, to the tzaddik. You ready for a little story? And here's again, here's a story that could be taken out of context, okay? So I'm, I'm trusting you that we've learned enough Tanya and we've refined our senses that we're not going to, we're, we're not going to, Missed the point of the story, okay? The story is about the Magad of Mezrich, who was the uh, second leader of the Chabad movement, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov. A tzaddik, right? Needless to say, he was a tzaddik. One of his neighbors on his block, which I guess was the town in the town of Mezrich in Ukraine, there lived a woman, a non-Jewish woman, who um, deliberately dressed very provocatively. She was a pretty woman, and she knew it. And she enjoyed having people stare at her. She enjoyed the gaze of passersby. So she would dress the part, and she enjoyed it. And she noticed that, one, that her neighbor, the rabbi, the Magid, never looked at her. Just never even took notice of her. He never looked at her, and it bothered her. So she decided that she'll go. She went and knocked on the, on the Magid of Mezrich's door. And he opened up the door. And I don't know if she fully exposed herself or was just dressed very immodestly, but she wanted to force the rabbi to look at her. And the Magid of Mezrich looks at her. And he threw up on the spot. That's the whole story. Now, now. He did not throw up because a woman's body is disgusting, God forbid. But the objectifying of a, of a human body in such a gross way, it, it, it wasn't just that he was uninterested in it. He threw up. That's the story. <laughs> a tzaddik is not just somebody who says, oh, you like ice cream? Oh, I don't. <laughs> the thought of it disgusts him. The thought of it simply disgusts him. It, it's totally repulsive to his senses. Let's continue reading. Why is he repulsed by them? 
He is repulsed by them. He's repulsed by worldly pleasures. Now, by the way, let me let me let me let me clarify. The tzaddik is not just repulsed by sinful acts and by you know by things that you're not supposed to do. He is simply repulsed by the idea of kosher pleasures as well. You drink wine for pleasure? That's disgusting. That's the way a tzaddik thinks. You live life looking for your own pleasure? That's disgusting. That's a tzaddik's thought process. It's my Mendel's birthday, so I'll tell you a little memory. When my Mendel, he wasn't one years old. We once caught him that he had a stink bug in his mouth. He was uh, chewing on a stink bug. <laughs> he was enjoying it, FYI. How do you think we thought about it? <laughs> it wasn't just like, oh, that's not my taste, but it's like, you know, it was disgusting. <laughs> so a tzaddik doesn't just say, oh, you like a hamburger? Okay, that's nice. You know, I, I, I happen to not. It's, it's disgusting. What type of life is that? How low is that? That's, that's how a tzaddik thinks. Okay. Let's continue reading. He is repulsed by them. Because they come from the realm of Klippa and Sitra Achra and flow from there. This is the ego, unholy, it's Klippa. And the complete Sadiq hates, ooh, it's a strong word, with the ultimate hatred, anything that is from the Sitra Achra. The complete Sadiq is a very emotional person and he has a lot of hate in him, which is unconventional. I want to explain to you what this hate means. Let's read. Let's continue reading. Why does he have hate? Let's read. This hatred and repulsion emanates from his great love for God and his holiness. It is a great love, a love of delight, a love beyond the intense fire of love, the intense love of fire. Okay, that's a mistake. Love of fire, as described earlier. You know why the complete Sadiq hates? Because he has so much love. He loves God so much. And whatever is opposing is, is not God. He hates. Let's continue reading. The love for God produces this hate because holiness and sitra ahra are direct opposites. So the more one loves God, the more he will dislike anything opposed to God. Very interesting here. The altar says love and hate are two opposite emotions. And each one is commensurate to the other. Each one is equal to the other. The more you love, the more you could hate for that object of love. The more one loves their children, the more they could hate somebody because of their children. You started up with my child? You started up with my spouse? I hate you. <laughs> Right, it, it's a. On the one hand, it's like a human bias, maybe even a human a human weakness. Something so special to that. Can you imagine if a parent didn't hate? I'll give you a little example. I'll give you a little example. Okay, let's just let's just give a bit of an extreme example. What is the appropriate emotional reaction? of a parent who hears that somebody 
physically hurt their child. Somebody went and hurt your child. What do you feel about that person now? Do you say, oh, you know, listen, you know, some people are not nice. Too bad, you know, too bad that it happened to my child. I'm sure the justice system will do what they need to do. Are you going to be cold and dispassionate about it? The anger and the hatred is very appropriate. And it's a sign of love. It comes from love. It comes from love. If you don't know how to hate for somebody, then you don't even know how to love them. Or if your hatred is not uh, that strong, your love is neither that strong. The altar teaches for every love, there has to be an equally powerful hatred. To what? To anything that goes against and compromises and hurts the object of your love. The complete tzaddik has an absolute love for God. Highest level of love. He's deeply emotionally in love with God and godliness and holiness. And Klippa is not just simply not his taste. He hates it. He's disgusted by it. It's very intense and passionate. Let's continue reading. As the verse says, with an ultimate hatred, I hate them. They are my enemies. This is from the book of Psalms, quoting King David. Search me and know my heart. Right? King David tells God, search me, you'll know how strongly I love you. And therefore, this is why I hate um, anybody or anything that, that, that goes against God. So the complete tzaddik is somebody who has no internal negativity. He has no attachment for it. And his only emotional attachment is God. And therefore, he hates anything that conceals God. That's the complete tzaddik. What about the incomplete tzaddik? Let's now read. The incomplete tzaddik is lacking this type of fiery emotion. You want to know why? Because a little bit, a little, little bit, he has some tiny, minuscule emotional connection and attachment to klipa, to worldly pleasures. And if you enjoy it even a little bit, you can't be that disgusted by it. So for example, if somebody says, I'm going on a diet, I'm not going to eat any ice cream for the next six months. I don't think you're going to be disgusted by it. <laughs> I think to the opposite. I think uh, if you see somebody eating it, you know, it's uh, it's going to get all those good, um, I don't know, all those good neurons fired up, you know. <laughs> as long as you're emotionally attached, you're still going to like it. Maybe you could stop yourself from doing something. So that Sadik, the incomplete Sadik, he's so good, he's so perfect, but he has a tiny drop of affiliation, of association with Klippa and worldly pleasures. And therefore, he doesn't have this type of intense hate for, for, for Klippa. And therefore, he doesn't either have a complete love for God. He has a very, don't worry, he has a very high level love of God, but uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit less passionate than the complete Sadik. All right, let's read. And we're going to conclude with this. An incomplete tzaddik then, we're in the middle of page 94. An incomplete tzaddik then is one who does not hate the sitra achra with the ultimate hatred. All right? He, he does have some of this nauseousness, some of this disgust, 
some of this repulsion, but not to the ultimate level. He is therefore also not repulsed by evil to the extreme either. Okay? And as long as the hatred and repulsion is not complete, we must then say that there remains some smidgen of attraction and pleasure towards that thing. If so, the filthy garments, his attachment to worldly pleasures, have not been entirely removed in every way. Right? This incomplete tzaddik has at least a rat ears of a connection with, uh, with unholiness and worldly pleasures. Okay. And this explains, let's conclude here. And this explains why the bad within his animal soul has not been transformed to actual good. Why? Because it still has some attachment to the filthy garments, which means the incomplete tzaddik still has a yetzer hara. Right? He still has a yetzer hara. He still has an evil impulse. But it's, it's so tiny, it, he doesn't even hear it. He never notices it. But it's there. Somewhere deep within his heart, he could, he could, he could connect with this pleasure. He does connect a little bit in a totally subconscious way. It's not at all conscious. Instead, let's continue reading. Instead, this minuscule attachment to worldly pleasures has become insignificant. We're on page 95. And effectively absent due to its smallness, right? So for all practical intents and purposes, it's gone. It's meaningless. It's not that meaningless. In some subtle ways, you could see, you could detect that he still has a little bit of negativity within him. And that is why he is called a tzaddik whose bad is suppressed and submissive to him. He has bad, but it's totally suppressed and totally submissive to his godly soul. Okay, and this also means, let's conclude, and this also means that his love to God is not the ultimate love, which is why he is called an incomplete tzaddik. <laughs> okay. So we have a complete tzaddik, an incomplete tzaddik. We understand what's going on inside of them. And just by the way, I'll just tell you historically, this is the reason why most tzaddikim, right? Tzaddikim is the plural of tzaddik. In, uh, historically, did not live amongst, uh, you know, didn't really socialize that much between common people. Because their lives are just so different, you know. For the same exact reason, we don't socialize with cows in a barn, you know. Just our lives have, you know. <laughs> Tzaddikim would usually uh, live very reclusive lives, very private lives, and they would try. Most Tzaddikim was what we call hidden Tzaddikim, which means they just it was nobody's business that they were a tzaddik. They usually liked jobs that nobody had to bother them too much. They were the water carriers. They were a cobbler. They were a shoemaker. There was nothing too impressive about them. You know, they would go to the same shul that you go to. And they would sit down and put on a talis and put on tefillin and davin. And then they would go and mind their own business. A tzaddik doesn't mean that you're this big guy and that you're going around and talking to people. That's, you know, that's, that's something else. Most tzaddikim were very private individuals. And you kind of understand why, you know, you know, just our our style lives, it just doesn't really match their lifestyle that much. I'll tell you a little story. 
And this is a story about somebody who I don't think was a tzaddik. He was just a chassid, but he was a very... So here's a story. And unfortunately, he died in the Holocaust. There was a Chabad chassid, very special Jew. His name was Rabbi Yitzchak Urevich. Um, and he was known as Itche. Itche is a Yiddish nickname for Yitzchak. So Itche. Itche der Masmid. Masmid means um, he was a hard worker. He was a chassid who really devoted himself to, to growing spiritually. He was a very special Jew. He was, and he really was, he, was, he really was, I don't know if he was a tzaddik, but he was a holy Jew. He really, you know, his whole life was dedicated to spirituality and he worked on himself. You know, he was, he wasn't taking life easy. And the previous Rebbe sent him in the 1930s to America because uh, there were some, there were certain Chabad families that were already moving down to America, that were already immigrating to America. And, um, and uh, Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Itche de Masmed was sent to go there, bring the spirit of Hasidus to them, to fundraise from American Jewry. Now here in Detroit, there's a whole bunch of families that have Chabad roots. Oh, David Goldus, right? You're a Raskin, right? There you go. So there's a whole Raskin branch of Chabad that can, this is, uh, there are a few Chabad families. So, you know, that's, it's a 1930s, his first letter that he writes back to his family in Europe. He writes, I can't believe it. I've never seen anything like this. He says, here in America, people drink wine and eat meat just for their own pleasure. And they don't even try hiding it. He couldn't believe it. It was such a culture shock, he was disgusted by it. You know, if you're not a tzaddik, you do appreciate the taste of good meat. And he could appreciate the taste of good wine. But to go and such self-indulgence, that's gross. That's disgusting. He, he couldn't stomach it. You know, so, so if you eat meat on Shabbos, okay. You don't have to tell anybody that you're enjoying it. But to go and officially, you know, marinate in yourself, so self-obsessed, going to go eat out. It, it, it's such an interesting thing because like it shows you what the, you know, today, it's a, <laughs> this is American culture. This is a culture of American affluence. You know, but it shows you a little bit of an attitude there, right? Like he, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. So this is a tzaddik. A tzaddik is somebody who, he eats food. The fact that it tastes good or it smells good or it looks appetizing he doesn't even notice it. So he says, oh, this tastes good, but FYI, I don't care. He doesn't notice taste. It totally, his senses are so past that. Next class, we'll conclude chapter 10. We'll learn a little bit more about the spiritual work of a tzaddik. And then chapter 11, we're going to go to the other extreme, to the other side of the, uh, of the spectrum. We'll learn about the Russian, the spiritual state of the opposite of a tzaddik. And then we'll explore the Benini, where we'll find a little bit of ourselves. But over here, we're learning about a tzaddik. I just want to conclude with this one thought. On the one hand, what we're learning here is not very practical for our lives. The way God made souls is that very few souls have the potential to be a tzaddik. To win the war this well is a special gift from God. Most people cannot accomplish this. So when we study this, it's not even a practical aspiration for us to ever succeed 
as well as a tzaddik. We still learn about it because practically it's good to know the spectrum. Right? When you know one extreme of the spectrum, you know the other extreme of the spectrum, then you could kind of see, you know, you have a better idea of what's happening in between. But also there's a lot of value in understanding at least a little bit what the life of a tzaddik is like. Even if we know we're not going to be a tzaddik. But it's important that we appreciate what a tzaddik is. And that we don't think the way that cow thought in the story, right? It's important to have that little bit of appreciation. A tzaddik is something else entirely. But also, the Tanya is going to tell us that even though we're not a tzaddik, we have to strive to sometimes have tzaddik-like moments. To build up within ourselves a very passionate love for God. It's maybe not going to last. We're not going to be able to live with it 24-7 the way a tzaddik does. But for a moment, could we inspire ourselves maybe for a moment to have a tzaddik-like moment? And the same thing for the opposite. We don't hate physical pleasures. We enjoy it. <laughs> what can we do? We have an animal soul that appreciates these things. But we're sp- the, the Tanya, the author is going to tell us sometimes it's important to inspire ourselves, even for a moment, to experience that level of, of disgust for material pleasures the way a tzaddik does. Maybe we could have a tzaddik moment. And that's that's valuable too. But uh, so that's that's why we still study about it. One second, Max, we asked a question over here. How does a tzaddik feel about Kiddush wine? Does its use in the service of God mitigate the hatred for the earthly pleasure? Hi, Shana. Hey, hi. The tzaddik doesn't hate wine. Something to hate about wine. He hates the idea of using wine for self-gratification. Wine for kids is great. Well, if he sees somebody saying, I love wine, let me just chug a glass of wine now. Yeah. Like, what? That's that's what that that's your life? <laughs> that's disgusting. Understand? Um you could be sees- using it for something so much better. No, and, yeah, and, and 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 it's like it's so low. Like that's like, we all have things that we can look at people doing and say that's low. Maybe I'll do that also, but not that one, <laughs> right? Like that's gross. That's base. That's 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 such a corruption of 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 anything refined. We all we all have that as well. But in any case, dear friends, with that we conclude today. We made uh, some good headway into chapter 10, studying about the about the, uh, the tzaddik and his successes. And have a wonderful evening. We'll see you all next week, God willing.